This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. Hi guys, welcome back to Portable Pete's, and we're going to be today having our first ever review episode. So this episode's going to be structured a little bit differently, and you can always look forward to these at the end of the month. So if you didn't have time to listen to each of the episodes that we release weekly, or you want to have a review of everything that we talked about in a rapid fire pattern, this is going to be your go-to episode. So over the past month, we went over CNS infections, and those will be the highlights of our rapid fire points for today. So turn on your listening ears and let's get started. So in our first episode, we began the discussion of the febrile neonate. And with that, we could launch into a whole separate series, but here's your highest yield points. A febrile neonate is commonly described as a child within the first 28 days of life with a temperature equal to or greater than 38 degrees Celsius, which translated Fahrenheit is about 100.4. When we think about infections that could be the cause of etiology in these babies, we want to think about first group B strep as the most common. Knowing mother's history is important for this, especially when she was tested. If she tested positive, it's very important to know what antibiotic, if any, and how many doses of that antibiotic were given prior to delivery. Other pathogens that are high on the differential are gram-negative rods, such as E. coli, listeria, and herpes simplex virus, for all of which good history taking can be extremely useful for early clinical suspicion and diagnosis. Additionally, after the first week of life, the risk of gram-negative rods, not including E. coli, causing sepsis decreases tremendously. And as you guys are very aware from being on the floors, these babies will always require admission to the hospital for monitoring, further investigation, including blood cultures, urine cultures, and CSF cultures, and initiation of empiric antibiotics. An important point to note, both for test taking and on the wards, is that listeria in mothers can have the presence of flu-like symptoms in the prenatal period, which is highly suspicious for this infection, and the presence of white nodules in the placenta is highly specific for this infection. The last important point from this question is that ceftriaxone is not used until an infant is over one month old. This is contraindicated because it displaces bilirubin from albumin binding sites and results in higher free bilirubin serum concentrations, which can accumulate in tissues. Even more dangerous is ceftriaxone's interaction with calcium. This interaction precipitates calcium, which can result in serious adverse effects. Next, Liz is going to talk through our second episode. So in the second episode, we began to touch on congenital infections. These congenital infections include toxoplasmosis, syphilis, rubella, cytomegalovirus, and parvovirus B19. It is important to note that these are congenital infections, meaning they're transmitted to the fetus while still in utero, and this is not the same as perinatal infections, which are transmitted to the fetus in the time period immediately surrounding delivery. There is some crossover between these two categories of infection, but the most common perinatal infections seen are herpes simplex virus, varicella, enterovirus, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and HIV. 
Congenital diseases have tons of overlapping features, including IUGR, hematologic insult, ocular abnormalities, CNS signs, pneumonitis, myocarditis, nephritis, and hepatitis. The typical presentation of parvovirus B19 in the neonatal period is extremely severe, with isolated pleural and pericardial effusions, fetal hydrops, and a high risk of fetal death. The greatest risk of mortality is present if transmission occurs in the first half of pregnancy, with the overall risk being between 2 to 6%. The diagnosis is with a positive serum IgM. Remember, the easiest way to recall congenital CMV is with the four C's of CMV, chorioretinitis, central cerebral calcifications, and potential for sensorineural hearing loss. Infants with congenital rubella present with IUGR, followed by SGA, cataracts, cardiac anomalies, deafness, and the classic blueberry muffin rash, white matter anomalies, periventricular calcifications, and calcifications in the basoganglia can also be seen. Congenital syphilis is likely to present with more mucocutaneous lesions, hepatosplenomegaly, snuffles, lymphadenopathy, osteochondritis, hemolytic anemia, or thrombocytopenia. Similar to other congenital infections, congenital toxoplasmosis presents with microcephaly, chororetinitis, seizures, and hearing loss as common manifestations. It is even more common for this disease to rear its ugly head later in life. At that point, it presents with seizures, learning disabilities, and cognitive deficits. All right, and in our final episode, the one just before this one, we talked about arboviruses, viral meningitis, and a couple other common causes of meningitis, such as fungal, tuberculosis, bacterial, and then also subarachnoid hemorrhage as well. So in this case, opening pressure in cases of bacterial meningitis is typically much higher than viral, with a turbid appearance of the fluid and a high protein count with low glucose and leukocytosis with a neutrophilic predominance. The CSF to serum glucose ratio is typically less than 0.4, in bacterial, fungal, and tuberculous meningitis, compared to a typical ratio of greater than 0.6 with viral meningitis. The most common causes of meningitis vary by age group, so in newborns, they're at the highest risk for group B strep, Listeria monocytogenes, E. coli, and Klebsiella. The most common pathogens seen in toddlers and children are Streptococcus pneumoniae, Neisseria meningitidis, and Haemophilus influenza type B, although this is significantly decreased with vaccinations. Teens most commonly are affected by Neisseria meningitidis and strep pneumonia. The signs of a subarachnoid hemorrhage can include sudden and severe headache, vomiting, lethargy, weakness or paralysis, nuanced seizure, loss of consciousness, or altered mental status, and a lumbar puncture on a child with an acute intracranial hemorrhage would likely be grossly bloody or xanthrochromic, but may otherwise have normal indices. This should not be confused with an HSV tap, which can also be bloody. CSF profiles in a patient with fungal meningitis will have a slightly elevated protein count, slightly decreased glucose, similar to a bacterial meningitis, but it'll have a mild leukocytosis made up of predominantly monocytes, similar to a viral meningitis. Of all the viruses, enterovirus is the most common cause of viral meningitis across all age groups, with paracoviruses being the next most common in children. There are more than 100 arthropod-borne viruses, commonly known as arboviruses, that can cause disease, the most common of these that can cause viral meningitis, encephalitis, or meningoencephalitis, are West Nile virus, lacrosse virus, and St. Louis virus. These will typically present with a viral prodromal period of headaches, arthralgias, myalgias, and a rash, followed by neurologic symptoms of vomiting, stiff neck, or even mental status changes and seizures. There are very few bacteria that cause an aseptic meningitis, and these include Mycobacterium tuberculosis, or TB, Borrelia burgdorferi, also known as Lyme disease, and Treponema pallidum, also known as syphilis. 
And last but not least, for fungal meningitis, this is typically more prominent in patients that are immunocompromised, uh, such as patients who are undergoing chemotherapy or have HIV or some other immunocompromised state. Um, However, if you are immunocompetent, you are less likely to have fungal meningitis. All right, and that'll do it for this, our first review episode in our first month of the podcast. If you've been tuning in from the beginning, thanks so much. We appreciate your support. If you'd like to follow us, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We've got a website, PortablePeds.com. On social media, we're at PortablePeds. If you want to talk to us, we have an email. It's PortablePeds at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions of topics you'd like us to do in the future, feel free to let us know. We also would like to give a huge thank you to Zach Goldman for doing all the artwork that you see on our website and on our social media. But that's it for this month. Next month, we're going into newborn medicine, talking about hyperbilly, neck, and respiratory distress of the newborn. So you can expect episodes from us every week like you've had so far. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye, guys. Howdy, and welcome to Portable Peds, the... Nope. <laughs> I don't remember how we introduced it last time. <laughs> I don't know. Where do I have to start at? The whole start thing? The, yeah. Oh my god, what did you ask me? I don't even remember what I said. You made me make stuff up, Ryan. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. If you've received aspirin or if you're receiving solicitate-containing med... Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, why? Okay. Um, another contraindication. Mm. <laughs> He's doing terribly. Okay. Another medication that would fit in this class would be Zenevimir. Zenevimir. <laughs> oh my god. Another medication. <laughs> Don't laugh while I'm saying this. In which case, cefotaxime should be added to the treatment. Red- yeah, no. Hypoglycer... I'm not even going to attempt to say that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to help you a bit. (laughs) Hypoglycorrhea. I've I've literally never heard someone say that word before. (laughs) I had to write it. (laughs) Hypoglycorrhea. Focus. Okay, I'm so I'm so ready. It is important to note that there is <laughs> treatment is with pyrith. I knew it. I was gonna laugh so hard. I'm not gonna look at you. We're so excited to have you back for our third episode. It's Sam and. <laughs> <laughs> So answer choice A, bacterial meningitis, is incorrect given the CSF. (laughs) IUGR, hemodilet, moop, moop, words, man. Okay.